This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Be a Pig's Invasion. Hello and welcome to episode 87 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is a number one song that's a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru... Billy Joel. Our mission, to feed our heads. Our pledge, together we shall learn without ever feeling like we're really learning. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, should we toast our lobes around the fire? Yes, we should. And today we're talking about something that uh, I need to know more about because it has a very provocative subject, not least because it involves critters, Bay of Pigs. Yeah. What did you know about Bay of Pigs, Katie, Uh, before today? 100% nothing about Bay of Pigs, other than I just love the idea of a a lovely cove filled with oinkers. Sunbathing. Sunbathing. Going in some pinker. And and breaststroking. Um, (laughs) No, it's uh, in 1961, a bunch of Cuban exiles launched, or did they, Mm. a failed operation on the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. The idea was to weaken... Castro's hold. Yeah, I knew nothing. How about you? You're even younger than I am. (laughs) I'm even younger than you are, yeah. I knew a little bit about this from having had a little jaunt around Cuba about (gasps) 20 years ago. Lucky you. And everywhere you went in Cuba at that time, I'm sure it's still the same, there are statues and monuments to the triumphs of the revolution, not least its great leader, Fidel Castro. So uh, the Bay of Pigs gets possibly one-sided reviews in the (laughs) geographical landscape as you make your way around Cuba. (laughs) Well, I'm jealous that you've been to Cuba and somebody else who's been to Cuba is our expert today. Uh, He was previously on our Castro episode. It is Dr. Stephen Wilkinson. He is director of the International Institute for the Study of Cuba at the University of Buckingham, and he's one of the UK's leading experts on Cuba and U.S.-Cuba relations. He's been traveling to Cuba. He's been writing about Cuba since 1987. Welcome back, Steve. Oh, it's good to be here. Yes. Hi. Hi. So you uh, put us in the picture very molecularly uh, for Fidel Castro. Um, I still am taunted and titillated by the idea that his nickname was The Horse. (laughs) Um, But please, can you set the scene for the Bay of Pigs invasion? How long has Fidel Castro been in charge? What's the mood in Cuba? Is he popular? Just kind of give us the the down low on the situation. Okay, so the revolution triumphed on the 1st of January. So it's only been around for like a year, two years when this event happens, okay? The relationship between the United States and Cuba got worse. It began to go pear-shaped quite quickly when Cubans nationalized a lot of land and, of course, nationalized uh, some stuff that was owned by Americans too. So that soured the relationship somewhat. And the United States started to get iffy. So secretly, in 1960, 
they began to discuss overthrowing Fidel Castro. So around sometime in the early spring, March 1960, the Eisenhower administration called in the CIA and they discussed the possibility of arranging the overthrow of Fidel Castro. Katie, this takes me back to our Eisenhower episode. There was a little detail in that that um, has come back to mind where we learned that because of Eisenhower understanding the horrors of a full country-on-country war, he had this idea that subversive ways of getting his way might be better. Yeah, sneaking around, covert action. A bit of sneaky covert action. And this seems to be straight from that playbook. Exactly. This is covert action. This thing, this term they use, plausible deniability. Now, there is some discussion about whether or not Eisenhower actually directly ordered this thing to happen or whether he just directly ordered them to do something and the CIA came up with the plan. There is a debate around that because some people who support Eisenhower think that he was not a very, he wouldn't have approved and of this. Steve Eisenhower allocated thirteen point one million dollars to the CIA. So yeah. was that just like mm, do what you want with this wad of cash? So no, they came up with a four-point plan. Okay, so uh, number one was to make life as hard as possible for Cuba. So organize uh, an opposition inside the island, organize an opposition outside the island, create a propaganda machine. They set up a, a radio station called Radio Swan, which transmitted propaganda to the island. So they had this this whole scheme. So they allocated $13 million to doing all of these things. And within that, the CIA came up with this plan to invade the island using people that had left. Now, what is really interesting about this whole thing is that the people that left Cuba originally were, in fact, the upper class. So a lot of these people that were in this brigade that invaded Cuba were actually millionaires and the sons of millionaires. That's extraordinary. Oh, wow. They, they were kind of uh, g- personally going back to get their property back, oh, right. which had been nationalised. It's almost like so, a sort of dispute on a street, Katie, isn't it, where you might yeah. wade over your neighbour's fence. So, I mean, this is a real, this is a really class thing. It's, this is the thing about this. This is a kind of like a, a class division that is actually real, right? And so what they did was they went off to train secretly in Guatemala and Nicaragua and so on. And there was a couple of bases in Florida as well, secret bases in Florida where they were training and getting military prepared for this thing. But this started happening in 1960. And, of course, it didn't stay secret for No. Long, right? People knew it was happening. And the Cubans <laughs> knew it was happening. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing was, though, that this is, this is in this period before there is a breakdown of the relationship officially. So there is still diplomatic relations. There's still flights between Cuba and the United States. It hasn't been cut off completely. This, wow. is, this is in the you know, first few years of the revolution. So that doesn't happen until after all of this. Uh, of course, there's this two-way traffic. There's people going to Florida, coming back to Cuba, and of course they're meeting people and they're going in. Did you hear that Pepe is in Florida, in, in, in Guatemala? Yeah, what? He's training. They're going to invade. They've oh, got really? a machine gun. Where do you so, get that from? So then, of course, some of these people were going back and going to the you know Cuban Communist Party and saying, "Hey, I've just been to Florida, and they're planning to invade us." You know, and so of course word gets up to the leadership. So they they know already that there's going to be. An invasion. But apart from that, of course, it gets into the American media. 
Kennedy uh, apparently one day opened the New York Times and said, well, you know, why the hell does Fidel Castro need spies? He just has to read the New York Post. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering what the CIA was thinking in terms of the best case scenario for this. What was the ideal outcome? I mean, presumably no bloodshed. One of the reasons why it failed was because there was a genuine underestimation of the popularity of Fidel right. Castro. There was an assumption that he wasn't that popular, but in fact, he was incredibly popular. Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the historian of the Kennedy White House, actually went to Kennedy and said, you know, we didn't need Price Waterhouse to tell us that 1,500 men couldn't <laughs> beat 25,000. Yeah. But the thing is, what they intended was they would just create a beachhead. So they would create a kind of free area uh, and then they would fly in a government in waiting that they would then declare would be the real free government of Cuba. And then there was going to be a, a UN uh, General Assembly resolution in support of this new government that had landed in Cuba in this beachhead. And then the United States was going to invade. Let's talk about the people who are coming up with this plan, Steve, because when you were with us before, we heard about some of the extraordinary ways the CIA were attempting to assassinate Fidel Castro, including the exploding cigars, the poison <laughs> in his scuba stuff, an exploding seashell. So the, the people at the CIA who seem to be acting with a certain degree of impunity here, who are they? Well, you've got characters like E. Howard Hunt, who later on turns up in the Watergate thing. Incidentally, the people that did the burglary of Watergate were Cubans. What? Yeah, yeah, they were they were veterans of this thing. Oh, so he had his people around him, Howard Hunt. Uh, no, the thing is that these people were kind of like let down by the United States. They were captured. I mean, 124 of them were killed, but the rest of them were captured. The the invaders, the, invaders. the, the aristocratic yeah, uh, invaders, yeah, exactly. Cuban invaders. I mean, there were there were also people within the group that were former members of the Batista dictatorship, the junta, and, and they were actually executed because they were wanted for crimes against humanity during the dictatorship, you know. But the rest were negotiated back when Castro uh, demanded payment in baby food for, for them, which was really interesting. <laughs> baby so, food, not, not just because he has a hankering and a weird fetish. No. No, no, okay. no, 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 no. And um, these people returned, and many of them went, went back into the CIA. So some of the characters that crop up later who are carrying out terrorist attacks against Cuba, that are doing dirty work and dirty business, the CIA agent that was responsible for the capture of Che Guevara, he was one of the Bay of Pigs veterans, <sighs> right? Yeah. These people get, get involved in the CIA afterwards in a big way. Wow, and so it sounds like, just as Tom was saying, CIA are just uh, large and in charge, uh, perhaps too big for their boots, moving with impunity. I mean, well, what happens is the other guy that's involved, the guy that's actually really in charge of the operation, is a guy called Richard Bissell. Now, Bissell was in charge of the operation that overthrew the government of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954, which was a successful CIA coup. So they put the same team, because it had been so successful in 54, in charge of doing this one. The inquiries that have gone into why it failed have looked at the relationship between the CIA, its leadership, and the White House, and the way in which Bissell kind of didn't let on that there were problems with the plan. He kind of 
kept stuff. Was that just because of his own ego? Like he just needed to look like he had it all under control? Well, you've got to remember that this plan also was fatally flawed because it bridged the two administrations. You see, it was the Eisenhower administration and Richard Nixon, again, this is why Nixon's important here, who was vice president, that were in charge of this plan. Yeah. Right? Now, Nixon was vice president and expected to win the election in 1960. Of course, it didn't pan out. Kennedy actually won the election. And that meant he inherited this plan, which he didn't know about because it was secret, right? (laughs) Now, the thing was, during the election campaign, they both tried to outmaneuver each other on the question of anti-communism. So Kennedy was attacking Nixon for being too soft on the communists. And he kept saying, you're not doing anything about this guy, Castro. You're not doing anything about him. Then he loses, right? But then Kennedy finds out the whole of the plan. Now, he's come in because of all of the dirty stuff that the Eisenhower administration has been doing, you know, overthrowing governments in Central America and stuff like that. He wants to clean up America's image. So he doesn't want to be associated with this thing. So he says, okay, it's gone so far, we can't stop it, but we're not going to involve American troops. Well, that wasn't part of the plan. Original plan was for American troops to actually get involved. So he said, no American troops, no American involvement. They'll have to do it themselves. Well, of course, that meant that it couldn't happen, but the CIA went ahead with it because they thought, They could bounce Kennedy into getting involved, you see. Kennedy then, because he refused to let America be involved, the plan failed. And they blamed him for the failure. The CIA blamed him. The CIA and, of course, the Cuban mafia. Now, remember, you were talking about the assassination things. The CIA were ordered by Eisenhower to whack Castro to get rid of him, right? They started to make a deal with the mafia. And they got the Cuban mafia to try and kill Castro on the promise that when they got rid of Castro and they got back into Cuba, the mafia could have their gambling (laughs) and all their businesses back. It's extraordinary this case to hear this because uh, you and I are both big fans of Three Days of the Condor. Yes. The um, Sidney Pollack film starring Robert Redford, 1975. Yeah. All about the paranoia of what the government might be doing behind our back. And to hear that the a, that a government agency is negotiating with a criminal organisation to assassinate the leader of another country to then let them commit more crimes. Yeah, any port in a storm, Tom, any port in a storm. <laughs> Steve, I also want to talk about Alan Dulles's role in the invasion. He was the head of the CIA, and there's been a suggestion that he was deteriorating mentally during the planning stages, reports of odd and eccentric behavior. Do you have any insights? Dulles was not in charge very well. Therefore, he wasn't overseeing the project closely enough. Mm. These guys went a, went a little bit rogue, mm. right? They afterwards, of course, wouldn't take the blame. They didn't blame themselves. They, they blamed Kennedy. Part of the plan was to destroy the Cuban Air Force. So there was raids carried out on the air bases. And that signaled the start of the invasion. The the invasion happened on the 17th of April, 1961. On the 15th of April, they bombed the Cuban air bases. And they were trying to knock out the planes. They didn't succeed. There was another raid planned for the morning of the 17th of April 
which was to completely knock out the Cuban Air Force. And Kennedy refused to allow that attack to take place because it would have involved American planes and they didn't, he didn't want the American planes to be involved. But there was another reason for that. And that was because in the um, uh, United Nations, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations was a guy called Adlai Stevenson. Adlai Stevenson was a veteran liberal Democrat who had actually run against Kennedy for the nomination for president and didn't get it. And he was given the job of being the U.N. ambassador. And part of the CIA's plan was this fake bombing raid. You know, when they bombed the air, airport on April the 15th, they used these planes that were mocked up to look like Cuban Air Force planes. <laughs> and one of them flew back to Florida and landed in Florida. And this guy got out and claimed that he was a defecting Cuban Air Force pilot who'd bombed his own airfield. <laughs> right. And that's Ad really that's called committing to the bit. Adlai Stevenson was given a photograph of the plane and presented it as evidence in the U.N., of the fact that this was a rebellion by indigenous people in Cuba. And the Cubans were able to debunk it completely yeah. because they said, actually, we don't have any of those kinds of planes in right. our Air Force. <laughs> That's a fake. Oh and gosh. they completely, and Stevenson was, was left with like egg on you know, his face. Egg on his face. Yeah. And he was furious because he was actually a really honest guy. Yeah. And he phoned Kennedy up and said, if you think I'm going to sit in the United Nations and lie for you, again, you've got another thing coming. You can forget it. And he slammed the phone down. And Kennedy said afterwards, no more airstrikes. Oh, that's good. The truth of the matter was that the planes that they had, which were uh, B-52s, I think, they weren't really capable of matching the Cuban planes. The Cubans had much superior planes, not many of them, but they were faster fighter-type jets and uh, uh, a British plane called the Sea Fury, which is also an interesting story, but maybe we'll save that for another time. But anyway, British planes flown by Cubans shot, shot down... The, the invading planes, and also were able to attack the ships. And they actually sank one of the ships that was bringing the troops in. Uh, it was very effective. And the fact that there was, they were also able to, of course, strafe the troops on the, on the beach. So the superiority in the air that the Cubans had was decisive as well. And so that's why the CIA, Bissell and so on, blamed Kennedy because they didn't have air superiority because they didn't knock out the Air Force. Oh, I see. And let's talk through the actual attack. Like, you know, all systems go, let's invade. What? How did it play out? So they left from Nicaragua, which was actually, it was in the hands of a dictator called Somoza at the time. And Somoza very famously waved them off, you know, when they <laughs> left. The thing was that the Cubans were ready, you see. They knew that the invasion was going to happen. They didn't know exactly when. But as soon as the air raid started, they knew that it was going to come very, very soon. So Castro mobilized the militia. They had like a civil defense militia. He made this impassioned speech. Incidentally, the whole thing turned out to be a huge uh, propaganda coup for Castro because in the air raid, one of the people that was killed in the air raid on the air base was uh, a young apprentice. He was only like a teenager. I think he was only like 16 years old. And he was hit by shrapnel and he bled to death. And as he bled to death, he dipped his fingers in his own blood and wrote Fidel on the wall. And of course, they took a photograph of this and this guy became this big national hero and this thing was like 
spread everywhere across the media and stuff. And there was a funeral for all of the people that were killed in these raids. On that occasion, Castro took the opportunity to actually declare that the revolution was going to be a communist revolution from now on. It hadn't, it hadn't been until that point. So the U.S. actually hoisted themselves by their own petard in that way. They actually forced him to become a communist. Well, not, they gave him the opportunity to actually radicalize the revolution much further than it was. Right. The other thing that they were ready for as well was because there was a whole period, not just the assassination attempts, there were also terrorist attacks. They, were, they blew up a department store in Havana. The CIA. Uh, the CIA. Well, saboteurs. And in response to this sort of wave of terrorist attacks, Castro set up these neighborhood committees called the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution. These are volunteers, vigilantes. They were tasked with checking who could possibly be one of those that might support the Americans. So they had a list of suspects, oh, right? And the thing was that part of the plan was, of course, on the morning of the invasion to have uh, groups break out in streets in demonstrations in support of the invasion, right? So Castro basically had this committee, and as soon as the air raid started, he ordered the arrest of everybody who was suspected. And they reckoned something like 150,000 people were detained. Mm. They put them in cinemas and they put them in sports stadiums and so on. And they kept them there for the whole time, for like a week. All right? Any, so anybody who was kind of thought to be in favor of the Americans was kind of kept off the streets for the whole time. It was, so there was nobody to go out on the streets to demonstrate in favor of it. Was the invasion always doomed, do you think? Because when we look at the chronology of it as it unfolds, it seems to be a litany of errors, of things just not in any way transpiring as they had thought or hoped. Yeah, uncannily. And also, of course, luck. I mean, or bad luck, you know. If Nixon had won the election in 1960, the plan would have gone ahead as planned, right? Because Kennedy took over and he was cold on the idea, he, he watered it down, so it, it became less possible. The other thing was, there was, the original plan was not to land at this place called the Bay of Pigs. The original plan was to land further down the coast at a place called Trinidad, which is a, quite a large town. Now, the thing about Trinidad is that it was a place where the people were kind of cut off from the rest of the island because there's a big mountain range behind it, cuts it off from the rest of the island. And this mountain range is quite high and very, very verdant. It's got a big kind of, not, not, not exactly a jungle, but a forest, um, very thick forest in it, the Escambre Mountains. One of the people that defected from Castro early on uh, was a guy called Eloy Gutierrez Menoyo, and he went he went guerrilla against Castro. And he had this guerrilla force in the Escambray Mountains that was carrying out like a guerrilla campaign against Fidel Castro throughout this period. And he was being supplied by the CIA. And their plan was, if we land in Trinidad, if it goes wrong, the force can get, disappear into the forest and join up with this guerrilla unit, right? But the thing was, Trinidad didn't have an airport that was big enough to take B-52s. So they couldn't land this government in waiting there, and they had to find an alternative place, so they switched it to the Bay of Pigs. Right. Now, the Bay of Pigs was chosen because it did have a long enough airstrip, 
And it was isolated from the rest of the country because it's a swamp, right? Now, what they didn't know, and it's surprising that they didn't realize it, but the, the, the place had been a kind of pet project of Fidel Castro's secretary, a woman called Celia Sanchez, who was very, very important and not given a great deal of uh, you know, notice for what she did, but she was actually really, really important part of the, the revolutionary thing. C uh, Celia Sanchez knew about this place because the people that lived there were really, really, really poor. I mean, you're talking about uh, life expectancy of around 40 you know, uh, they had no schools, no sanitation, nothing. They lived by burning charcoal and selling it to this very exploitative dealer that came down every few months and bought it off them and and then, then sold them stuff at exorbitant prices. They were thoroughly exploited. And she took, literally a few weeks after the revolution triumph, she took Castro down to this place to show him and he said, we've got to do something about this. So they actually immediately started a program to build a hotel and start a tourist business down there because it's a very good diving place. Bay of Pigs is renowned for the coral. It's in it, right? So it's very popular with divers. And Castro is a diver. And he said, we'll build a hotel. We'll, use, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage tourism down here. And they built a road, right? So they actually built the very first road that connected through the swamp this place to the rest of the country. So there was actually a road that they could go down, you see. So the they CIA got the troops. And the invaders had no idea. And they didn't realize that this had happened. You kind see. of an oversight. Now, the other thing was, when they, when they started this kind of literacy campaign and stuff, the very first place they sent people to was the Bay of Pigs. So these people in this area were like super grateful to Fidel Castro because yeah. he built this hotel, he was building this road, he'd sent these teachers down there. And so when the when the when these people landed, they expected to be greeted by people saying, Hey, you come to free us. But no, no. they actually started firing back straight away. Sure. They, they met fire as soon as they appeared on the horizon. Yeah, because they're harshing their buzz. Yeah, and uh, and so that was another reason why it kind of fell. So like underestimation of the enemy, some misfortunate coincidences, contingencies that happened. And, of course, it was a big shock. And it was an even bigger shock because, of course, although bits about the planning had got into the media in the United States, the, the, the general sort of deluge of PR that the CIA produced was all about, you know, this force was winning. So on the morning of the 17th, they, they published in, you know, they put out a press release saying that the force was like 60 miles from Havana. Well, you were showing me before yeah, yeah. we started, you have the cover of the Herald Tribune. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and let's look at the date. So what date so, is so this? So is, this is actually published on April the 18th, which is the day after. But of course, this is published in Paris. So it would have had to have gone to bed, mm. as they say, at 10 p.m., maybe latest the night before. Um, so it's predi so, um, predicting the future? It is kind of predicting the future and is also kind of rewriting the past because there's a map, very useful map, which shows three landing sites. So there is the landing site at the Bay of Pigs, but there's another one in a place called Pina del Rio and another one in Baracoa, which is in the, in the eastern part of the island. These two attacks did not take place. But it's reported in the paper as having taken place. And the reason why they didn't take place was because 
because Castro was so prepared, he'd put the militia on patrol on all the beaches where a landing could possibly take place. So these two decoy attacks, they were decoy attacks, uh, when they were very small forces, when they saw all of these militias placements on the beach they turned around and of went course. away and they didn't they didn't land but in the herald tribune on the 18th they're still saying that these were landings and so what uh, accounts for these alternative facts published in this august newspaper no this is definitely and, and has been proven since cia propaganda which is fed to the media right so they've got a very slick machine which is all ready to go on the morning to kind of so the general public in the United States is given to believe that this force is winning. Sure. Two days later, different story. They're defeated. The shock is big. Yeah. Let's talk about how the world reacts to finding out what has gone on, because the defeat is, is as you say, Steve, is pretty quick. How does the the wider world react to what America has done? Well, the Brits weren't very keen on it. You know, and of course, you're talking about um, the conservative government uh, composed of people that had had been toasted by the United States over the Suez thing in '57. Of course, right, which cost us a bridge, uh, cost the conservatives a government, right? They were kind of had a bit of Schadenfreude because they mm. thought, yeah, yeah, these these Americans aren't very good at this kind of thing, sort of thing. You know, <laughs> it it also meant that suddenly the hand of the United States was shown that they really wanted to overthrow this government. And so the Allies, Soviet Union in particular, sort of moved to say, you know, we're going to defend Cuba. And in his memoirs, uh, Khrushchev said, you know, we immediately thought, how can we defend Cuba? Well, the best thing to do would be to put missiles there. Yeah. So the missile crisis, which happens a year later, the Cuban missile crisis, yeah. is 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 precipitated by this defeat. You see, yeah, you know, and the other thing is, of course, the Berlin situation. It actually kind of triggered the real kind of cut line in Berlin. It it was a heightening of the 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 conflict, right? Mm. It also triggered um, the feeling that the United States was losing because uh-huh. remember. 1949 Chinese Revolution, we lost China. They said we lost China. We lost it to the communists, right? So now we've lost Cuba. We've lost Cuba to the communists, right? So there's this kind of panic. The communists are winning. So then this kind of idea of like, we've got to stop communism, wherever it is, Vietnam. We've got to, we've got to stop the communists from winning in Vietnam. So the, it triggers whole, a whole range of things. Overreactions, you might say. Yeah, it, 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 the reaction to it creates lots of the stuff that happens afterwards yeah. in, in your song, you know. Yeah. And the thing is also you've got to remember that uh, in Latin America, uh, it cements Castro in power. It, it actually creates a communist revolution where there wasn't one before, yeah. like I'm saying. Unintended consequence. Yeah. So that means the Americans get more and more paranoid about what's going on in other parts of Latin America. So they start to uh, get closer to military people, etc., etc. So, you know, when you think about... 64 Brazil, uh, 65 Dominican Republic, uh, 1970s Argentina, Chile, all of that kind of history of America supporting right-wing dictatorships to prevent another communist country, another Cuba from happening. This incident is actually, you know, really crucial because had they succeeded, 
Castro would be no more. And all of that stuff would never have probably happened. As I'm listening to Steve Case, I've got one particular question in my head, which is whether there was ever an alternative course of action for the CIA or for the American administration in general, which might have been to extend the hand of friendship to Castro rather than using that hand to <sighs> curl it into a fist and punch him in the face. <laughs> it's not in the playbook, as you said earlier, you know. I mean, uh, the thing is, is that you're talking about the United States. And, of course, it, it goes back to that kind of history we talked about when we talked about Castro, that the United States historically had an opinion or a viewpoint of Cuba as it being theirs. And the Americans just un completely underestimated the capacity of Fidel Castro and this revolution to actually succeed. And um, when it did, it was like, this is effrontery. We can't, we can't be doing, we can't, we can't tolerate this. So no, there wasn't really. And the other thing is, of course, th this incident cements th this relationship because, like I said at the beginning, these people that were in this invading force were the bourgeoisie of Cuba. And then they were kind of rescued again. They had to be rescued. Kennedy went made a speech where he said, you know, very famous speech where he said, they say victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan, but I'm going to take responsibility for this. And I promise I'm going to do, you know, and he made a pledge to these prisoners yeah. and their families and so on. So they become this very, very privileged community in the United States because they have, you know, they've got a debt. Uh, there's a debt of betrayal that has to be repaid to them. So they, they, they do very, very well. And they are very, very powerful. And they are the people today that still are the main force that prevents the United States from changing its policy. Uh. So you have just explained this to me because I, as an American, I never understood this hold that the the Cuban expats in in Miami and in Southern Florida had, and and why to this day Americans cannot travel freely but they to also, Cuba. Yeah, but they also know where the bodies are buried because they were the people. Uh -huh. Like I was saying, they were also the people that did the dirty work for yeah. for the United States. So they so they quid pro quo. They've got yeah. So they are actually integrated into the establishment yeah. in such a way that means so you know people like Marco Rubio is going to be running for the presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, th th these guys are all descended from this community of Cuban-Americans. And that's why they're us. And they are very, very wealthy and they're very, very powerful. I see. And, and so they have got a grip on American policy. Yeah. It's a very small group of people have such a g amount of control. One, one of the most interesting reads is Nixon's Nixon's memoirs, the last book he wrote before he died, because he, he actually has a whole thing about how oh. it was a big mistake to let those Cubans get a grip on the policy of, oh, the, of the United States. Yeah. That, you know, the, the, there's a hell of a lot of stuff. We big mistake we made was letting the Cubans have a, you know, a grip on that policy. We should have taken it off them and so on and so wow. on. He says that, yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, I want to circle back to the... Uh, one of the architects of the invasion, Howard Hunt, who was a future Watergate break-in conspirator, um, it, he rightly complained that he was being punished for the very thing he was trained and directed to do. Uh, this is when there there was questions being asked about, you know, the, the failure in the in the Bay of Pigs. But you and I were having a conversation before we started about uh, his reaction to when the the Bay of Pigs invasion failed. What what happened? Yeah, yeah, no. He wrote in he wrote in his memoirs that he went home and he was really really distraught and he he couldn't speak. He felt sick, physically sick. He went into the kitchen. He mixed himself a big martini and he went out into the garden and sat under a tree and wept. 
Mm. And then his wife came out because it was, it was, you know, it's April. It's not that warm. <laughs> she came out with a blanket to wrap around him, but he wouldn't, you know, he sat there uh, staring at the sky <laughs> and crying. And he was, you know, thinking about all those brave boys that were, you know, on the beach and stuff and felt it was the worst day of his life, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wow. Big... Uh, huddled in a blanket, drinking a martini. Sounds yeah. like the ideal Saturday to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So let's bring it back to Kennedy because so many of the lyrics and this part of the song, Katie, mm. are either directly or indirectly about JFK. What does it do for him, Steve, in the aftermath of the failed invasion? Well, it makes him look weak. Now, he kind of doubles down. So they actually decide that they've got to kind of do something. So the CIA doesn't stop. I mean, they start a re revamp campaign. They call it Operation Mongoose, which was really, you know, try and kill Castro, you know. And they also start to plan an invasion of Cuba. So we understand that, for example, they were thinking of actually invading Cuba in November of 1962. So the missiles did stop the invasion because they were found in October. Uh, had they not been there, then the U.S. might have invaded. Uh, so Kennedy wa was planning secretly to, to get his own back. And part of the reasons why the missile crisis happened was his inability to respond strongly enough to the attacks that were being made on him in Congress. And in, interestingly, you know, the grandfather of George W., the father of George Herbert Bush, Prescott Bush, was the leader of the Senate, and he was re having this campaign against Kennedy saying, you're being weak on this guy, Castro, still, because the Soviets are building up their forces there, and they could be putting missiles in Cuba. So Kennedy was like saying, no, 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 they're not. Um, you know, we, we have intelligence, they're not doing that. And he even had a summit meeting with Gromyko, the, the Soviet uh, foreign minister, where he asked him outright, you know, are you putting missiles in Cuba? And Gromyko said no, because <laughs> they were lying. Because <laughs> yeah. that was their idea was they keep it secret too, right? And Kennedy went back and said, I've, I've asked Gromyko and he's told me straight out that they're not doing it. You know? and, then, and then, of course, when they found out that they had the missiles, Kennedy looked even weaker. So then, you know, the whole crisis was worse than it might have been because Kennedy had to look strong, you know. And uh, How did he re recoup his clout then after well, these missteps? Because, because the settlement of the missile crisis was made him appear to be a tremendously able statesman because it avoided nuclear war. Oh, it was a game of chicken that and, he won. And, uh, yeah, as a game of chicken that he won, it appeared that way because in the agreement with Khrushchev, the agreement was you take your missiles out of Turkey and we'll take our missiles out of Cuba. And Kennedy said to Khrushchev, well, yeah, we'll do that, but take my word we'll do it. Let's not put it in the actual document. So right. we, we, it doesn't appear as though I'm giving away on that. Oh, I see. We will take them out in six months. Don't worry if you do me that favor. And the Russians took it. Ah. Right. So it appeared as though Kennedy had got them to take the missiles away without giving anything back. Right. Right. But that wasn't true. Yeah, PR coup. And of course, yeah, PR coup for Kennedy. So he looks strong. But of course, the military knew what had gone on and other people knew. So this is where the whole conspiracy thing comes in. Because people think two things. The Bay of Pigs invasion itself 
What did Kennedy do afterwards? He was so angry with the CIA because he blamed them for making him look bad. He actually said in a fit of rage in the office, I'm going to smash the CIA into a thousand splinters. That's what he said. I'm going to smash the CIA. They wanted to get a second term. So they didn't do it straight away. But Robert and uh, John decided they were going to dismember the CIA and reorganize the security apparatus completely. But they were going to do it in the second term. Right. Hold fire on right, that that's, one. That's number one. And then he's got this thing where he owes a favor to Khrushchev. So they say, hmm, that's why they got rid of Kennedy, because he, he couldn't let him get a second term. Oh, that's the conspiracy. That's that the that's CIA, the biggest that's that, the that, biggest argument of this conspiracy theory. That the CIA whacked Kennedy with Cuban hitmen. Oh, that's why Donald Trump said that Ted Cruz's dad killed Kennedy or something. <laughs> Did that he was, say that? Yeah, yeah. He, that was one of his things. I'm wondering about Steve the thousand prisoners that were held captive after the invasion that were released for baby food. <laughs> and other supplies. But apparently there was one prisoner who was held until 1986. Do we know why? I think you're referring to the guy that was actually, I don't know whether it was an actually live prisoner or whether it was a body that had been kept. The, there were Americans in the invading force, but of course they weren't supposed to be there. So there was one that was captured who was kept. And the thing was, because the Americans weren't supposed to be there. The Americans denied that he was oh, there. right. So therefore, he couldn't be oh, the guy no. that was held in jail, <laughs> yeah. right? Too bad for him. So he became like a disappeared person, and his family didn't know. Yeah, this is incredible. Yeah, so this uh, last prisoner, his name was Ramon Conte Hernandez. Okay, so he was Cuban. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with this case. Uh, I'm just looking at uh, the on the archives of the New York Times. It says that he was smiling and looking fit, accompanied by his 81-year-old mother. And it was uh, Senator Edward Kennedy who helped release him. Uh, release him right. Humanitarian gesture. And then at a news conference, Mr. Conti says, my ideas have not changed. It is difficult to retire from the struggle for freedom and against communism, which I have done since I was 16 years old. I like the fact that he spouts off as, as soon as he's been released as well. I, I hope he waited, Katie, till he was back in the US before making that stand. <laughs> I hope so too. So, Steve, question about the fact that uh, travel to Cuba is still off limits for Americans. Can Cuba possibly be considered a threat to the U.S., or is it all about the political lobbying on behalf of this powerful group of uh, expat Cubans? Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember that the same kind of things apply today uh, as they did then. Cuba represents not a kind of military threat or a security threat to the United States. That would be ridiculous. But it does represent a kind of alternative way. And bearing in mind, you know, the issues around healthcare, for example. In Cuba, they have a universal healthcare system, which is free. Um, so people get cured, they get help, they get, you know, they get medicine. Well, you, you don't really have that even now in the United States. So, nope. so it's that kind of example which sticks in the throat, right? <laughs> yeah, I bet. So it can't be seen to succeed. It can't succeed. So that's really what kind of fuels the 
antipathy, if you like, amongst certain people in the United States. If you talk about the general population, the general population of the United States actually thinks Cuba's a cool place and they sure. like it and they don't understand why the government has this policy. You know, they don't understand it. Uh, and when Cu when Americans go to Cuba, they're greeted by the Cubans with well, open arms and they, you know, they, they there's no problem with the general population of of the United States. The Cubans don't hate them. They just disagree profoundly with the government in Washington. So that's why it kind of, in my view anyway, that's how, that's how, that's how it, it persists. I about you, Casey, but that has filled my head with so much knowledge I didn't have before. Well, I love it. And Steve is just a master of storytelling because I, I felt like I was right there. Maybe uh, doggy paddling in the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Phew. I got a lot <laughs> off my chest there. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, I very much enjoyed that, but yes. I am most charmed by the idea of some pigs holidaying in this beach. <laughs> yeah, I got really stuck on that. Sunglasses, uh, pina coladas. I think you need to slap on quite a lot of uh, sunscreen on those curly tails. And as a reminder, if you haven't caught our Castro episode with Steve... Make sure you go back to that one. Oh, and Tom, we have had such a wonderful message from a listener. Her name is Mrs. Lee Stone. I wanted to share this with you. She says, thanks for the podcast. The song came out when I was in high school, and it was certainly unique for the time. Everything then was bubblegum and quasi-censored back then, but not Billy Joel. He busted that door wide open. My husband and I heard the song recently and remarked on how relevant it is to this day, so I'm really enjoying the podcast. She goes on to say that one of the aspects of your podcast that I'm really enjoying is hearing about the topics from non-U.S. guest speakers. Things look a little different when presented by people who do not reflect the same biases of the U.S. population. So thank you again. You know, that's actually a really good point. I mean, as an American who lives in Britain, I kind of take that for granted, but it is so refreshing to get a different perspective, um, which you don't normally get in America. And not because Americans aren't curious, but it's such a huge country and you're just not yeah. exposed to it. Mrs. Lee Stone, thank you very much for that lovely email. If you would like to follow us on social media, we are at Spread That Fire in all the usual places. Don't forget you can check out our extraordinary merchandise range at Spread That Fire. Com. Mm, and next week, I'm really looking forward to the topic, which is... Lawrence of Arabia. I've already watched the movie, and I might watch it again. O'Toole. And Omar Sharif. <laughs> oh, my. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become 
Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.